And welcome back to our latest episode of DeFacto. Uh, my name is Julian Lang. I'm here with Ricardo Salas. Ricardo, how are you? I'm great, Julian. Thank you so much. And a great day to you. How are you? I'm good. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the Paradise Papers, the second biggest leak of these kinds of tax evasion documents in history after the Panama Papers. Um, but before we get into it, we're going to be jumping over to Valentina Caracci. And then after that, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Alina Munju-Pipidi and then one of our Herti students, uh, Rafaela Rino. But first, let's jump over to Valentina. On November 5th, the Süddeutsche Zeitung and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists released details about the Paradise Papers, 13.4 million leaked documents originating from several corporate entities, particularly the offshore law firm Appleby. The papers name over 120,000 individuals and companies around the world, potentially implicating members of the British royal family, the President of Colombia, the US Secretary of Commerce, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Disney, Uber, Nike, Siemens, McDonald's, and many more impossible offshore tax evasion. At 1.4 terabytes of information, this leak is the second larger of its kind in history, surpassed only by the leaked Panama Papers last year. Back to you, Ricardo and Julian. And we're back with uh, Dr. Alina Munju-Papidi. Uh, she is a professor of democracy studies at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. She chairs the European Research Center for Anti-Corruption and State Building, ERCAS, and she is the president of the Romanian Academic Society and founder of the social media watchdog platform Clean Romania. She studied political science at Harvard University, and af uh, that was after completing her PhD in social psychology in Romania. Thank you so much for being here. That's a pleasure. Well, uh, what a topic, right? We've been talking about the Paradise Papers for a while, but perhaps uh, the press uh, the press has covered it widely in Europe, to, uh, at least in my opinion, but there's just so much more to talk about it. And you're, uh, I guess, the real specialist at, at the Hurdy School, uh, Dr. Alina. So why is offshore, uh, offshore finance such an important topic, and why should it worry uh, people around the world? You know, I'm just trying to think if this, me, me being a real specialist in the Paradise Paper is a compliment or not. I would rather <laughs> think it is not, you know. I'm not a specialist in hypocrisy. And this is what the Paradise Papers are actually about, you know, the same as with the Panama Papers. And I think that this is uh, what makes them so, uh, so widely interesting, is that uh, they go directly to, to the core of people's concerns, that the world is not organized on a unitary set of rules. And it's not organized on a unitary set of rules within developed countries, which for many, many years we have presented and actually, you know, hoped. I mean, I'm speaking uh, as a person who is coming from... Uh, a relatively corrupt country and uh, you know the the number one impetus that people have to change their countries is in presuming that other countries do better you hope that benchmarks of good governance exist in the world that you can look up to you know otherwise it's really difficult to educate your children if the whole world is really living like in some sort of Darwinian stage in which whoever can survive on the expense of others to live better uh, then really the world becomes a very difficult place to govern so you need some good governance benchmarks. And uh, now we feel very challenged. We feel challenged if you are someone who uh, are like an ordinary taxpayer in a developed country and you just figure out that everyone who really makes more money than you will hire a lawyer and will try not to pay tax. That is a big problem. It's a challenge to the tax morale in developed countries. 
But also it is a big problem for the developing world, the world which uh, qualifies to aid, because together with the aid in the past 15 years, we have been trying to sell this world some good governance rules. We told them, govern yourselves like us in the West, because we're well governed, because here everybody abides by a rule. That's exactly this kind of rule-bound definition, which is the definition of the West versus the rest. And this is now extraordinarily challenged, because it seems to be a terrible hypocrisy in, in the midst of all this. In other words, if you are rich enough today, you can afford not to pay tax in the same way that in 19th century, people rich enough would pay poorer people to show up for conscription in the army instead of them. So, you know, they had a safe life and the other people had a risky life. But that's not exactly what we've been telling the world, that that's how it works. Absolutely. Yeah, um, you, you already mentioned that this affected both developed countries and underdeveloped countries. And my question is, uh, a lot of us growing up in, I guess, developed countries would like to think that their, their uh, societies aren't as corrupt um, or are, have moved beyond a lot of these problems. Like you said, you mentioned uh, this reminds you a lot of 19th century kind of things. Um, my question is, does this mean that tax avoidance is inevitable no matter where along the development you are or is it just is it a problem we always have to fight or is it something that can be solved well i my uh, inclination to answer this it's not that you know that i have i am not a historian of tax i would like to be it becomes <laughs> a fascinating topic uh, with these things in order to understand uh, you know, one historical moment after another when you really manage to reach this equilibrium where people are more willing and they show more, more solidarity. Uh, my impression that is that we are really in a very bad moment when solidarity is breaking down. I mean, people really feel entitled to evade all this tax. And it's really very difficult to explain to somebody. We have been having this very bad period of austerity where we had to cut a lot of the public resources. Public resources, when cutting them, affect disproportionately people with medium or low income, right? So already these people have paid their their share and more than their share. And now it actually turns out that even after austerity, even during this crisis, the rich people actually came out far better than than they should. And uh, I think that's very problematic, and I think that this is worse than it was 30, 40 years ago, you know? I have very scarce indication, but I do have some indication. For instance, there is a Eurobarometer um, flash survey on European businesses, which looks at different years. And I first brought this up when the Volkswagen scandal broke in Germany, because Two-thirds of German business people actually claim that the business environment in Germany is based on connections, evasion, lots of things that we actually associate with corrupt behavior and not on good old merit that we would presume that Germany works. So people know about it. People know about it and the older German business people with whom I talked, again, not systematically like for research, but just occasionally, they told me this was not the case in the 70s and 60s, that business ethics was really very, very different. So I do not know if, if it is a crisis which made it worse or what I think more plausible is simply the fact that opportunity was very high. Opportunity was high. We lived in this neoliberal environment after the 90s. And simply these people did this because they could. 
there was absolutely no restriction. And therefore, more and more they learned from one another. You know, the specialized service uh, services were created coming around and offering, uh, you know, to, to hide your income in a legal way. All right, it has, it has to be said that it is in a legal way, but I don't think this matters because, you know, I consider corrupt to legislate in your own interest. And obviously, obviously the most influential group will always take care that the law brings them additional benefit. But when you are in a crisis period and you cut from other people, then that's really fully corrupt because it basically means that some people are going to be discriminated and other people are going to be favored simply because some people have more influence over the legislative process. What about countries, uh, for instance, developing countries where uh, tax enforcement is rather weak or where uh, uh, a minority of people pay their taxes? Sometimes either industrial industrialists or, or businessmen feel um, have this belief that uh, paying taxes is absolutely unfair, uh, given that they should pay so many taxes, and uh, that those resources are going to be either diverted, diverted or embezzled by the government, so it's no use whatsoever to, to pay taxes, or they should look for um, ways to uh, to save on taxes or to uh, use that money in, in a more productive manner. Is, there, is this a lack of morale in, uh, among elites in developing countries, or how do you see this problem? Well, again, this is an issue of tax morale, and it is a fundamental issue, because unless you manage to build some sort of social contract where people pay you tax because they believe that they will get something in return, you know, I don't think people are idealistic anywhere. People are realists. And people would even accept uh, a, a certain degree of corruption in government as long as they will see some return. And they will also understand that there are things that individuals cannot provide from themselves, you know, defense, security, law and order. You know, you can always uh, see if the social contracts exist on you. For instance, one, one of my favorite indicators is number of individuals hired in private security in a country. You know, if those are actually more than the police people, it simply means that the people don't trust the government, and then, of course, they feel justified not to pay tax with the government. You know, in communist times in our countries, there was a saying which basically said, who doesn't steal from the state steals from his own family. So in other words, you had to steal the state because otherwise you were depriving your family of your income. So you had to choose between state and family and you must have been an idiot, you know, to, to pay something to the state sure. when this could have gone. But you have to move over that because if that's how you think, uh, then the countries uh, don't develop, all right? Or at least this was the ideology that we're telling people because now they can look and say, oh, look, UK is developed, but it seems like most UK elites don't pay tax. Gabriel Zuckman's book, uh, The Hidden Wealth of Nations, shows that who is in the top of tax evaders hiding their income in Switzerland? The French and the Germans. And it's not something which happened after the crisis. They've been doing this for the past 100 years. You know, he shows how they started when the, you know, when the first uh, heritage tax was introduced in France, people immediately started to think, to look around where to put their income, all right? And how could you have answered that? You could have answered that simply by some sort of uniformization and this time solidarity among governments because nobody wants to have, you know, okay, some countries think that they can make a lot of money by hiding the income of other countries, but that's really wrong behavior. And you shouldn't think like this if you're uh, Switzerland, and even Switzerland was pushed to the wall and they can no longer do that. Okay, so I think it is normal for people to uh, think that they don't get enough for their money, whatever. Not everybody has a trusting government of the Finns, for instance, who agree to pay 60% of their income. But basically afterwards, the governments take care of, of them in every, every other respect, and they feel that every cent is, has, a, has a good returns. 
so I think that is normal and trust has to be gained and you go step by step by building this social contract and by building this equilibrium but now if people have I mean this is a mortal blow to trust the Panama and the Paradise Paper because it shows that in the developed societies actually it doesn't work as people thought it worked so maybe these countries are actually not developed due to their good tax morale because all this seems to be very hypocritical right maybe their ancestors did something virtuous which developed the country and not the current generations who are just profiteers because it's very easy you know if you remember uh, or you don't remember you're too young you know if you remember my fair lady you know in my fair lady the the Mr. Doolittle, who is the father of, uh, of Eliza and who's a drunkard all the time and he's giving lectures by Professor Higgins and he tells Professor Higgins, I mean, look, 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 you know, I, I sleep under the sky, he's a, he's a sort of homeless and I'm a drunkard and this is why I'm low on virtue. When uh, you sleep in a, to in a posh house like you and you have a heart, it's very easy to be high on virtue, all right? So we somehow associated virtue with prosperity, but if virtue is actually not associated with prosperity, then the world is a very Darwinian place, and it's going to be very difficult to lecture poorer countries that they have to achieve good governance. Oh, this is an incredibly interesting point, but I think there are many aspects of this conversation that we, we could actually highlight, but uh, one thing that, that resonates to me is that um, developing countries cannot really see developed countries as, a, as an example, at least from a, a fiscal stand, uh, standpoint when uh, there's just so much tax evasion or there are legal schemes for uh, diverting, diverting money that should be otherwise employed in, in, uh, in public spending or uh, public expenditures. Um, Julian? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have a question going essentially right off that point. Um, is there a difference in how countries or governments or institutions should fight this kind of corruption between where, where, if they do it in a developing country or in a developed country? Or does this kind of blow that distinction out of the water? No, I don't think this blows the distinctions out of the water because in developing countries it's about gaining trust for the first time. It's attracting for the first time resources. And this is something where I think the government should do like the first step. Uh, the first step, it means in showing that they would do something good with the money if we give them. The governments and the governing elites of these countries, why I think that in developed countries it is basically the restoration of trust. Something has been broken some, sometime. I don't know when, again, we have to be a historians a little bit and dig up to see when has this problem started to be that bad. All right, we have to look at this. Uh, because, you know, we all watch uh, TV series where people have to marry to, ser to, to save their Downton Abbey, you know, you have to <laughs> marry to save, but why? Because you actually pay your heritage tax, right? If you could evade your heritage tax, then you wouldn't have to marry someone rich. You could just go on and cheat on tax. <laughs> so definitely, you know, they didn't have this possibility. You know, it's also, I think that the nature of income presently, that everything is in cash, that people no longer have this kind of landed properties, also favors this kind of, uh, of immoral behavior. Okay, so I think that in the West, the burden of proof should actually be on elites, not on ordinary citizens and not on governments. It's a very bad moment, and it was a bad moment for elites anyway in the past 10 years. You know, people look increasingly towards, even, you know, even to policy experts, people look. Everyone who's very well paid in the West is these days the target of quite a lot of suspicion. During Brexit was even an official campaign against this, and I think a part of the success of Donald Trump is also unexplainably 
explained by the fact that uh, you know people hate elites, but somehow they don't consider him to be part of, of elites. And I think the burden of proof is indeed on the elites. Elites, in order to survive, you know, because historically elites are changed now and then, are replaced. Everybody wants to be in, in, in their situation. So unless you have some legitimacy, unless you prove to a society that there is something good that elites spill over to the to the larger society, you're just going to be replaced. I mean, we are seeing this a lot. I mean, look in Turkey, for instance, where Erdogan has been replacing the previous elite with the current elites, part of the argument being that the, the previous elite had all the economic privileges and they were hypocrites and corrupt. And in particular, when corruption comes into picture, you provide a very powerful... Uh, weapon to the opponents, to the to the upstarts, to people who want to replace you. So I think that you know, in Darwinian again uh, terms, in survival terms, I think it is in the interest of Western elites to understand that they have trespassed. They have trespassed on the trust of people and on these contracts that elites are actually should be open. And an elite in a Western pluralistic society is not closed. You know, otherwise we're in elite theories in the sixties. You know, no, it's uh, it's open. It's uh, you can enter in the basis of merit, and once you're in, you don't lock the doors and you make investments so your your children are going to be richer than uh, their equivalents with merit in 50 years' time, because then actually it means that you destroy the the system. What about uh, government? What can governments do, or people around the world, to to tackle the problem of or offshore finance, or at least minimize it? And use those resources in a better way. Also, on the other hand, there's the issue, uh, okay, so governments could perhaps do something to tackle this, but what if people don't even trust their governments to use their resources wisely? Well, these are two problems that we're discussing at the same time. One problem is what to do to make your own government accountable, what they do with your tax money. And in this, I think that's what I work on, and I think there are quite a lot of things that you can do. And the other problem is uh, what to do to dry up these uh, offshore resources where the corrupt uh, people from other countries come and hide their money. You know, and we know what to do. I'm now I'm speaking about the second situation because the first I wrote so much of it and I worked so much of it that I don't feel like indulging in that one. But now we're just talking on the paradise. We're not talking on the paradise paper. I mean, of course, of course, what we need to do is first is like complete transparency, you know, to have to know the ownership of everything. This kind of uh, anonymous hidden transactions or entities should not exist anymore. But then why don't we do this? Well, we don't do this because we have a collective action problem. The interests of everybody or of governments from where people you know, hide their taxes is not aligning with the interests of countries, in particular with small economies, where people actually, uh, those states make quite a lot of money by hiding other people's uh, countries. However, these are small countries, and we should be able to put enough enough pressure on them. Even I would suggest, you know, I would suggest even compensating them in, in some ways. All right, I would promise foreign investment to a country which gives up being a rogue state and hiding other people. I mean, it doesn't just have to, we just don't have to go there and, and invade them, all right? But we have to align interests. Right now, it didn't work because it was in the best interest of Switzerland, of Singapore, and of a lot of Caribbean islands to hide, uh, you know, the, the money of celebrities uh, and like, other kind of, of elite people in, uh, in U.S. or... Um, or Europe. And this has to end. This alignment, we have to force it uh, a little bit because it's not going to come about naturally. It's not one of these situations. Interests are just different. 
but we have to align them and uh, there has to be something also for people who come along but there has to be some reward but some sanctions as well. So you're suggesting, and that's an interesting point, not only the possibility of imposing sanctions but doing uh, actually the, the, the absolute opposite, say uh, the UK uh, telling Bermuda, I'm, I'm just inventing an example but I guess it could happen, say okay we'll uh, promise a certain degree of investment just like You said, or um, invest heavily. They just—they the just have ball. to come together. They just have to come together, not separate. They just have to come together. You have to get something if you do the good thing, but you also have to to pay if you do the right thing. Okay. Uh, I don't expect people to do the good thing just for nothing. Okay, and just for avoiding sanction. Again, I'm a psychologist, so I'm afraid I, I generally have very pessimistic presumptions about <laughs> about people. Okay, but I think that you know, if you offer people. A little bit of something, the best in their nature will immediately come out. Right? I mean, that's, that, that's quite right. <laughs> um, changing gears a little bit, uh, some of the response that has come out in, in media, both by uh, prominent figures and not so prominent figures, um, I'm mainly referring to Senator Bernie Sanders in the United States because you mentioned Donald Trump earlier. He, he called out uh, the Paradise Papers as being a sign that the quote unquote global oligarchy is on the move or is making moves. Uh, I wanted to know if you, uh, do you think that phrase is a, a fair term to describe the situation or would that, I mean, it obviously is rhetoric. He, he's working towards uh, upcoming elections in the U.S., but um, is it a fair term? Uh, I don't think the term is accurate. Uh, to be honest. Uh, so, no, I, I sympathize with what he means, that you have this, uh, you know, global profiteers, but I would not call them an oligarchy. First, they're not so few. Second, they're really not controlling this means of, uh, of, of creating money. They don't really have anything else than uh, more opportunity to profit, but I don't see them really bending authority. I mean, they're not like oligarchs in Russia or like oligarchs in Ukraine or, you know, or like oligarchs in the Gulf. I would not call them so. You know, they are just an elite which has been losing on, um, on ethics, and they have been losing on it for quite a while. And I think it's very good that they're exposed because the solution to every problem starts actually with an end to hypocrisy, is that admitting that this behavior, it may be legal, but uh, it's a way of uh, getting a favor and discriminating against less fortunate people. In times where we need to rally, we cannot ask solidarity or sacrifices from others if we, the most fortunate, don't, don't show ourselves. So I think uh, the wider the discussion, and even if uh, you know leftist people will take advantage to bring back the fact that we need a revolution, Uh, I would really, really say that uh, if elites of the West don't get the lesson, some sort of revolution will happen. It would not be the communist revolution, but it will be a revolution enough, enough to hurt some of them very badly. So it's really in their best interest to be less hypocritical, admit this is wrong. Most people see it, it's wrong, so it's wrong. And uh, move on, move on to a, a more um, equal, really, uh, based sort of um, taxation. Do you um, see a movement just like uh, Occupy Wall Street or something similar happening at some point uh, against uh, large corporations who dodge taxes or large corporations who are engaging in these sorts of uh, uh, behaviors to, to pay less taxes on tax havens or uh, some European countries? Do you see people having that level of awareness, of uh, at least in this particular problem? 
Uh, I am absolutely sure. I can tell you what happened in my country in the last year because we are, like many corrupt countries which try to be less corrupt, activism is very developed. It's far more developed than in Western countries, so people do a lot. So people were upset on a very corrupt TV station, really, which has high audience, uh, but it's always, always defending corrupt people in live shows. It's basically all the lawyers of corrupt people have high ground. So what did people do? Uh, people on Facebook, but by people I mean quite a significant number of people, hundreds of thousands of people, started blocking websites and writing critical messages to advertising companies and big clients in advertising of this TV. And they pushed and made this uh, TV lose two-thirds of its income in January and February last year because... You know, people on these people on Facebook were, uh, you know, urban, highly educated, and with a good income. And these advertisers and clients didn't like the fact that they were turning all these people against them. So they just pulled out advertising from the station. And the station had to change its attitude in two, three months because they were losing income. So these things are very possible, you know, these days. It's very easy to attack people online and openly under your name. You do not need to be a hacker. Reputation matters for company. And the only reason why they didn't pay higher reputation, it was insufficient mobilization. But it's not just Russians who can mobilize people on Facebook. Good people can also mobilize on Facebook. And then they're going to have to pay you a very heavy cost. Well, thank you very much for that comment. Um, we, we're running slightly out of time, but Julian, you yes, have a yes, question? just one last question. Um, if you have one takeaway that you'd like to share with uh, with our audience, maybe people who aren't necessarily policy students or policy experts, people outside the field, is there any one takeaway you'd you'd like them to have from this whole Paradise Paper situation, or in general, the leaks we've been seeing over the past few years? I would suggest that um, that people uh, keep interested in these stories because there are two ways of looking at a story like this. We believe that people are very interested and they read about this, but I'm very much concerned that there is a significant number of people who think, well, but we would probably do the same if we were in their stead. You know, if I could afford a lawyer not to pay tax. And this, if this is how uh, we think, then uh, this exercise in transparency has been completely fruitless. Mm -hmm. People th should really think that they lose and uh, it's not necessarily that, that they should lose and therefore they should really be informed about this. Transparency is really helping everybody, helping them as well as uh, helping Europeans uh, elites. Well, thank you so much. Um, that's a great thought to end on and uh, thank you so much for being here, uh, Dr. Munju Papidi. Um, we're going to be back shortly with a student and continue to talk about this topic. So thank you again. Thank you. And also a quick reminder that you've been publishing uh, quite, a lot of, uh, quite a lot of works on corruption. So uh, do look up Dr. Alina Mugiu-Pipiri because she has some very, very interesting uh, publications on corruption and uh, a lot of issues relating how to tackle corruption, how to tackle tax evasion, and so on and so forth. So once again, thank you very much. Welcome. And we're back with uh, Rafaela Rino. She is a Master of International Affairs candidate concentrating in finance and trade. Before joining her team, Rafaela obtained a Bachelor of Economics at Université Dauphine. Her previous work experience includes consulting work at Indiva, a consultancy focusing on inclusive business. Uh, she has also worked as a political attaché at the Italian Embassy in Dublin during the Britain Leave EU vote and has interned as a data analyst at Apolitical, an impact tech startup. Well, thank you so much for being here, Rafael. And, uh, well, it's your first time on the podcast, so it's always exciting to have students from uh, such different backgrounds. And you're trained as an economist, so 
uh, we're, we look forward to, to hearing what you have to say on, on this issue. Uh, how are you doing, by the way? Very well, and thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. So uh, we were talking with uh, Alina Mungupipiri about why offshore finance is important and why should countries care about these kind of things. But um, you as a young person and, and also as an economist, why do you think this problem matters? Uh, why do elites or why do uh, companies should not invest in, in uh, countries abroad and evade taxes or pay less taxes? Okay, I'm a believer on taxation as one of the main purposes to provide welfare state. In our European economies, when we look at Germany or France, for example, everything that has to do with redistribution and decreasing inequalities among people, it's possible through taxation. So when we see that corporate and multinationals or high net worth individuals are basically the richest 1% of the population and they're able to ship their profits abroad in order to escape the taxation of their own country, then it poses a problem for the provision of public goods. And particularly in, in developing countries too. But um, Alina pointed out to something uh, interesting, that it was mostly uh, uh, Germany and uh, also France, uh, which were the countries... Uh, also, uh, along with the UK, which were the countries that invested most in offshore um, or tax havens, uh, so to say. So there's a, a bit of a, an hypocritical component to, uh, to offshore finance, right? I mean, if you look at France, France is the second country in the OECD 34 countries after Finland with the highest government spending as compared to GDP. I think we are about... 46% of GDP that goes into government spending. So like all this tax planning actually ends up really hurting the society and therefore you have uh, the state has to get those funding elsewhere. I mean like France heavily, heavily relies on this welfare state to provide everything that goes from education, healthcare, uh, unemployment benefits and if that doesn't come from taxing corporate then you have to tax income and there is a bunch of literature that tells you basically that when you tax income and labor then what happens is actually that people remain out of like the employment and they rather stick to unemployment benefits so it's a vicious circle sure um, do you think that there's a problem of awareness against tax evasion um, Obviously, we as policy students are quite aware of uh, Paradise Papers and things like that. Or do you, but do you think that that awareness is more because we're caught in the policy bubble? Or do you think that uh, most people are aware of what the Paradise Papers or the Panama Papers really mean for their country? I don't think that people... It's, it's not about awareness, I would say. It's rather that we have been raised with, like... For me, as a European, I don't want to generalize, but I've been raised with having like my school paid by the state, high education paid by the state. Everything, everything comes to me, but in an indirect way. So, in a way, those this like tax events and offshore finance is not quantifiable for like a common person in the street, like. To know that the queen has some money abroad like doesn't really matter to you or to me like on a daily basis because you still get this social goods and social provisions. What I would say is that the problem is not awareness. I would say that we should more focus on everything that is power relations. And 
for example, what, what strikes me a lot is Apple, for example. Apple that got its best engineers, its best experts from the system, the education that most of the time was set free by government and then wants to pay zero tax rates in some countries. I mean, it pays in the U.S., but like in Germany, almost nothing. But this points uh, to a particular problem because many con many companies that do pay less taxes than they should or uh, use different sets of tacti tactics to uh, pay less taxes do so in a lawful way. So uh, the problem sometimes is more uh, the actual legislation of particular countries or uh, you know a lack of cooperation among countries to tackle uh, tax evasion or let alone evasion because we might not even be able to call it tax evasion if it's legal, right? Tax planning, Ta exactly. Okay, but uh, <laughs> certainly moral stand standpoint. I was wondering, um, do you do you think that the the solution to these kinds of things is just closing whatever legal loopholes there are? Do you think that's enough to deter uh, corporations or generally elites from from trying to use these tactics? Or is there? Do you think they would go? They would keep doing it even if? if I mean, obviously not all would, but do you think that uh, if they would still try to get around the law, no matter what I, it is? I mean, they have the best lawyers. Like every time I was listening to a podcast from Pascal Saint-Amand, which works at the OECD the other night, and basically what he was saying is that even though you close some loopholes, they have the best firms, law firms that are specialized, and they'll find a way around it. However like the OECD and G20 countries like have come with like different types of frameworks to fight this tax planning and avoid this base erosion, uh, profit shifting, etc. Those are steps. When I was listening to the podcast, uh, Pascal Saint-Amand was saying, okay, uh, let's hope that this is a picture of the past and won't be on the future thanks to what we've done in the recent years. However, I think maybe more soft, like soft implementations such as like a naming and shaming. For example, the Sudeche Zeitung just like wrote an, upper, uh, an open letter to like the Apple CEO being like, okay, like this is what's happening, like come on. Can this be possible? So this or otherwise, uh, what else? We were talking with some friends and what could be very interesting would be to have like a global tax report. Mm -hmm. So those could be solutions. But uh, I mean, step by step, knowing that uh, at the end of the day, tax is something that really is sovereign of a state. Mm -hmm. But our economies are globalized. So it is only through those OECD, G20, etc., that we will finally get somewhere, I believe. So, and transparency is a key element for this. It's a key element. Uh, by the way, uh, Rafael, you are incorporating this on your master thesis. Uh, could you tell us more about that? Yes. So basically, I'm going to write my master thesis, co-writing it with uh, Philippe uh, Schwarzweger, and we actually wanted to write about the impact of tax planning corporate tax planning, exactly, and tax avoidance on European society and especially on the effects on the provision of the welfare. Basically, what we would like to do is to focus on Germany and France. Um, 
our interest about writing on this uh, tax planning comes from this deeper concern that the billions of euros that are held offshore basically result from this tax planning and that this is money that is subtracted to the government and ends up missing to provide these uh, social goods and public goods. And, uh, and yeah, and there are like two aspects that we would like to analyze. One is this moral aspect. So basically all what we said before about like this labor skill skill that comes from you're basically turning your back and free riding on a system that has provided you with the skills to get there and to make that money. So yeah, we're still on the process of framing it, but hey, we're kind of very excited, I have to say. This is a fantastic uh, research prospect, I, I must say, and we look forward to reading it when you have it uh, completed in, yeah, in, in a few sure months. I, I know it's a scary <laughs> thought, but <laughs> for all of us who are <laughs> about to start writing our thesis, but yeah, congratulations beforehand. Thank you. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, uh, what do you see as um, a key takeaway that people who are maybe outside of uh, the bubble of us master students are... Uh, what do you see as like a takeaway from these recent events, the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers? Do you think that um, is there something that they could do in their daily lives? Like you said, that uh, it doesn't really affect them necessarily. But uh, could they? Ra uh, do you think raising awareness? You mentioned naming and shaming. Do you think that's the way to to go? I think naming and shaming and transparency, first of all. I do not believe on stopping buying Apple products or it's like going vegan because some cows have been maltreated in the side and I I don't believe that like one um, people from the outside besides sharing this information and I don't know I found it very interesting that some of my friends we started posting on Facebook and it sounds stupid but you know, and then I had some comments of people that are completely outside of this policy and they're like, for example, studying hearts and it has nothing to do that came to me and were like, okay, wow, like this makes sense now. And so I think that we can go with this soft approach to talking to people and like, but this is more for like awareness, but I don't think that we can change. We do not have the power as like common people to change. Those are banks government, multinationals, lawmakers. Lobbies have a tiny bit of power, but not so much neither. So let's see. I believe that the OECD is like taking a lot of steps. And I mean, also the uh, German government, for example, has implemented in December 2016 in his own list legislation, uh, this BPS uh, agreements and framework. And uh, before before that, there was a lot of uh, opaque. It was very opaque in the in the German system about like names of people and who's the beneficiary of like the account and who has the ownership, etc. So let's see. Yeah, and I mean the scope of uh, who is listed in the Paradise Papers does make uh, the thing you mentioned earlier about uh, stopping to buy Apple products because of this. It does make that very challenging to try to do anything like that because. It feels like virtually every major company in the world is impl implicated in either Paradise or Panama Papers. Paradise Papers featured Facebook, Twitter, Apple. I, I, was just, I was actually just about to say that, that there are 
different channels for uh, enforcing or, or demanding transparency and, and accountability. Uh, because yes, Facebook was uh, among one of these very very large companies uh, which have been you know, accused of uh, of doing tax planning and so on. But you might not even be able to stop using Facebook, or might uh, might not be able to, to actually accuse Facebook or, or demand something from Facebook via Facebook it, itself. So I think an important element of this is is also going back to uh, to the usual channels or traditional channels of demanding and making the government accountable to using, uh, to putting pressure on legislation and putting pressure on your local representatives to tackle this kind of problem. I don't know if that makes sense, but at least to me uh, is one of the most obvious uh, ways to put pressure on, on governments about this problem. Yeah, I mean, these multinational like apples are so big that they, like, they forgo unilateral agreements with governments to pay like more little tax they can as well so I don't know it's really it's really about shifting power and I'm not really sure that bottom-up type of like concern we've really changed because now we're we're really talking about very big players and I don't think that the effects of this offshore finance are really felt on the skins of like common people in the street because everything that we get from like taxation is it's not direct we do not get like those 200 euros per month that if you would get 50 at some point you would be like okay wow something is happening here okay but it's interesting that you challenge that point because you are are hence suggesting that a potential solution is more like a a top-down approach for Mm -hmm. this or uh, third parties like uh, NGOs and and so on I mean if you think if if you think for example in Nordic countries they get for the tax they pay they get a letter which says okay 20% of this has gone of this amount of tax that you have paid has gone for education this other 10% for health this is a realization and I think this is a very good way for the government to actually make you understand where the money you pay goes and therefore you, I think, feel more complied to, at the end of the day, pay your taxes and pay it on the right manner. Absolutely. That's a great point, and I think it's a very, very good takeaway, uh, not only for students, but for governments around the world, you know, to make information more transparent and to tell people, okay, so you're paying this amount, but this is what uh, we're using it for. I think a, a lot of people could, uh, you know, could identify themselves to, uh, with that situation. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure having you here, and it's been a great thank to hear you. your take. Um, thank you so much, Rafael. Uh, any last uh, remarks you might want to make? Or? Name and shame. Name and shame. <laughs> That's great. Perhaps. Well, there you have it. well, thanks again to Rafael, and thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, this has been a, a really interesting episode. And just a quick reminder, uh, also to um, stay. Stay tuned because uh, uh, the Governance Post has also been uh, collaborating with us and has been uh, republishing these episodes. So thanks uh, also uh, to them. And a quick reminder to be present on, on our social networks. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and now iTunes. Um, and we might be moving to a new platform as well in addition to SoundCloud soon. So keep your ears out. And feel free to comment on what you would like to uh, hear in future episodes. Uh, any, any other comments you might have. Uh, about this podcast and we'll see you until the next time thank you so much thank you julian thank you ricardo